Deadly Dose by Robert Howe. Kristen Rossum's husband committed suicide. Or did he? The call reached the emergency operator a little after 9pm. A woman, sounding desperate, pleaded that she couldn't wake her husband. Only a few minutes later, a paramedic bounded up the steps to a second-floor, one-bedroom apartment near the campus of the University of California at San Diego. There, he found the door partially ajar, and pushing it open, saw Kristen Rossum, 24, weeping into a cordless phone. She pointed to the bedroom. The paramedic rushed into a small, off-white room crammed with a computer station, two dresses and a queen-size bed, its blue and white striped doona crumpled in a heap. On the carpet between the bed and a dresser lay Greg de Villers, 26, Kristen's husband of just 17 months. Beside him was their wedding photo, and on a bedside table was a glass half full of what appeared to be water. Sprinkled on the floor around the young man were red rose petals. The emergency medical crew that responded on the night of November 6, 2000, had arrived too late. Kristen's personal saviour, the man who had rescued her from self-destruction in the years before, was dead. Rossum had met de Villers six years earlier, when she was just 18, a petite hazel-eyed blonde with sinewy legs that had once propelled her across the stage in an amateur production of The Nutcracker. She'd been blessed with beauty, an intellectual pedigree, and an affluent upbringing in Los Angeles. It seemed the world was hers to conquer. It hadn't worked out that way. For two years, since a friend introduced her to the powerful and addictive stimulant crystal methamphetamine, she had battled the demons of drug abuse. Her grades tumbled, and her relationship with her parents eroded badly. One night, as she was trying to sneak drugs out of the house, she'd literally come to blows with her suspicious father, a university government professor who had served in the Justice Department during the Reagan administration. Another night, following an argument with her mother, Rossum had taken a razor to her wrists in a failed, or pathetically feigned, suicide attempt. Still, she managed to finish high school and had enrolled at a nearby university. But on the night she met de Villers, in December 1994, she was on the run, not from the law but from herself. She couldn't shake her habit and was failing at university. Rather than face her parents, Kristen caught a train south, checked into a motel and hopped on a tram to the border town of Chula Vista. There, she headed for the pedestrian bridge crossing into Tijuana. I don't know what my motivation was, she would later say of her flight towards Mexico. But on that bridge, something wonderful happened. She dropped her jacket and a young Galahad scooped it up. I trusted him from the very moment I met him, Rossum said. Gregory de Villers, then 21, originally of Palm Springs, was the eldest son of Marie and Yves Tremolet de Villers, a French plastic surgeon from Monaco. Out on the town with his two brothers, de Villers took pity on the clearly distraught Rossum and invited her along. Rossum went home with him that night. It felt safe, she recalled, and I didn't want to feel alone. She never left. He adored her. Perhaps more importantly, he offered her hope. De Villers hated drugs, even over-the-counter remedies, and was determined to help her shake her addiction. It worked. While he finished his biology degree at the University of California at San Diego, she enrolled in San Diego State University. 
In June 1999, they wed, six months before Kristen graduated summer cum laude in biochemistry. Finally, she had control of her life, and to this day she credits that triumph to her husband. But with Greg's death, the reverie was over. Suicide. That's what authorities suspected. Their cursory search of the apartment turned up a partially shredded love note to Kristen from another man. She explained to investigators that she had told Greg just a few days before that she was moving out. She said he had got angry, then drunk, and that very day had taken some of her old prescription drugs to help him sleep. Maybe, she guessed, he had taken too many. And the rose petals? She wasn't sure. Greg had given her roses a couple of weeks before her 24th birthday. They had withered, and she had said she had thrown them away. Maybe he had retrieved them. Perhaps, she later theorised, the dead petals were his way of symbolising the end of their relationship and his own life. Her tragically melodramatic theory seemed convincing, at first. But the following June 25, police arrested Rossum for murder. To those who knew them, it was unthinkable that Kristen could kill the man who'd done so much for her. And the couple had seemed content. They were both embarked on promising careers they loved, Greg was working as a development manager at a biotech company and Kristen as a toxicologist for the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office. Still, just weeks before her wedding, Kristen had confessed to her mother and friends that she was apprehensive. She was too young to marry, she said, and Greg was obsessively protective. In her journals, she blamed her mother for urging her to go through with the wedding. If I had been given the family support I desperately needed... I wouldn't have Greg in my life. Then, in early 2000, Kristen met the man of her dreams, Michael Robertson, a widely published Australian forensic toxicologist who was hired as her new supervisor. Robertson, though married, wooed Kristen with emails and gifts, and she saw in him a soulmate she had never found in de Villa's. Greg said being romantic is expensive, Rossum would later testify in court. I said it doesn't cost much for a single rose. Although de Villas had bought roses for her birthday, Rossum and Robertson exchanged roses several times, and the emotional bond was deeper. I once gave him a red, a pink, a yellow and a white rose, and I wrote a note explaining what each of the colours meant to me. Kristen confessed to Greg in June or July that she had feelings for another man. Outraged, de Villas called Robertson and warned him to stay clear of his wife. Rossum claims Greg then took emotional refuge in bed for an entire weekend. Robertson's boss, having got wind that something was up with his two employees, also urged Robertson to cut things off. But when Robertson and Rossum went off to a week-long toxicology conference in Milwaukee in early October, they seemed to some almost to flaunt the fact that they were an item. Shortly afterwards, Rossum began using methamphetamine again, driven, she would say, by the pressures of her failing marriage. Precisely what happened in the days before de Villa's death is still disputed. By Rossum's telling, her relationship with Greg hit bottom on November 2. She was in the living room reading a love letter from Robertson when Greg suddenly entered the apartment. She tried to hide the note but claims Greg, demanding to know what she was keeping from him, grabbed her, shoved her to the floor and raised a hand as if to hit her. Then he backed off, unnerved by his own near-violence. She later shredded the note, but said Greg found the strips of paper and spent hours trying to piece them back together. 
Three days later, according to Rossum, de Villers ordered her to resign from her job or he would report to the head of the examiner's office that she was sleeping with her boss and that she had a meth problem. The following evening, de Villers was dead. Rossum says Greg woke that morning slurring his speech, so she phoned his office to let them know he wouldn't be in. She arrived at work after eight to be confronted by Robertson. They argued. She says he was enraged to have found drug paraphernalia in her desk. She went home to compose herself, found Greg asleep, and then returned to work. Later in the morning, she drove home to make lunch for Greg, who, she says, roused himself long enough to poke at some soup and confessed that in order to sleep he'd taken some of her old prescription drugs, the painkiller oxycodone and clonazepam, an anti-seizure medication also known for its sedating effects. She returned to the office, but left before three when Robertson left. She says the two met near her apartment and talked about their future. She apologised for her relapse and vowed to stop using drugs. Greg was still dozing when she arrived after five. She made a stir-fry dinner, left some in the fridge for Greg, went shopping for a cousin's wedding gift, came home and kissed her sleeping husband on the forehead before settling into a long hot bath. Emerging a little after nine, she then found Greg cold and pale. Instantly, she claims, she phoned emergency. A routine autopsy confirmed police suspicions that de Villers had taken an overdose, and Rossum signed the release to cremate the body. Then came the questions. De Villers' colleagues told investigators that he was a rising star and had no reason to kill himself, and spurred by de Villers' younger brothers, who said he was looking forward to upcoming birthday plans, Police halted the cremation so that more tests could be done. Fluids from de Villa's body contained, as expected, modest amounts of oxycodone and clonazepam, drugs Rossum said she was told years before could help her kick her meth habit. But the tests also detected fentanyl, a narcotic used in surgery and sparingly for debilitating pain. Colourless and odourless, it is at least 50 times more potent than morphine. It is difficult to obtain illegally, even in small quantities. And Greg's corpse was swimming in it. To the de Villa's family and police, there seemed to be only one reasonable explanation. Gregory de Villa's had not committed suicide. He'd been murdered. And his wife was the most likely suspect. Yet criminal investigators would have a tough time making the case. Police could not, and never did, determine how the fentanyl, the murder weapon, was administered. No syringes, drug delivery patches or paraphernalia had been left at the scene. And because police failed to test the glass of fluid by the bed, the scenario, though remote, that de Villas had got some liquid fentanyl and swallowed it himself remained a strong possibility. Another challenge, determining where the fentanyl had come from. The medical examiner's office where Rossum worked had not conducted an internal audit for as long as any employee could remember, but quickly ordered one done. The results were stunning. In seven of eight recent cases in which meth was gathered as evidence for testing in the laboratory, some or all of the samples were missing, as were small quantities of oxycodone and clonazepam. Fifteen confiscated fentanyl patches were also gone, and a 10 milligram vial of pure fentanyl, kept as a standard for use in comparison testing, was empty. On December 4, about a week after Rossum admitted to police in a voluntary interview that she had a drug problem, she was fired. 
Robertson was also sacked for failing to report her. Subsequent searches of her workstation uncovered an empty drug evidence envelope and a meth pipe with her DNA on the stem. Colleagues found love notes and rose petals in Rossum's desk and in Robertson's office, more than 30 articles explaining how to use and detect fentanyl. Robertson, who contends that he played no role in Davila's death, returned to Australia in May 2001, one month before Rossum's arrest. At Rossum's murder trial last November, a jury assessed the evidence and handed down its verdict. Guilty. Rossum gripped the defence table to steady herself and turned to her family with a shattered expression. At a December 12 hearing, the 26-year-old received a mandatory sentence of life without parole. A vital part of Rossum's undoing was the rose petals. Prosecutors made a great deal of her telling a friend that one of her favourite films was American Beauty, in which actor Kevin Spacey, who is slain at the end, lusts for a young woman he envisions sprinkled with rose petals. They also homed in on her claim that when she found Davila's cold and unresponsive, she tore back the bed covers and saw his body covered with petals. Following instructions from the emergency operator, she tugged him to the floor to attempt CPR. Yet there wasn't a single petal remaining on the mattress and none under his body, where prosecutors said they would have fallen as she yanked him from the bed. At the scene, police found one denuded stem and what appeared to be fresh petals next to Davila's. On the day Davila's died, Rossum stopped at a Vons supermarket to buy something for lunch. She used her Vons card to pay for her purchases. The computerised record was logged in at exactly 12.41. Along with soup, cold medicine and a big lighter, the receipt shows a single rose. In November 2001, the Davila's family filed a wrongful death suit against the County of San Diego for hiring Kristen Rossum, a known drug abuser, without performing any background check and giving her unfettered access to illegal and controlled substances. Robertson may be called to give evidence in the civil suit. It is alleged the county was negligent for the failure of Robertson to supervise Rossum, his subordinate with whom he was having an affair, and for failing to report her drug use. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.